Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōnai i pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, nō mai harumai ki te au hurihanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Clarkin Cannon tēnei. This week, Our Changing World is brought to you by senior producer Liz Garten. Liz was keen to do an episode on Tamiki Makauro's Pekapeke Touroa, or long-tailed bats. These mysterious mammals seem almost more myth than reality. So Liz went bat hunting with the help of Auckland's Batman and some Franklin locals. Hope you enjoy. Is it far or...? No. No? no. Oh, okay. We're only going there 20 metres. I'm walking through a little oasis of bush in Patamahoi, pretty much as south as you can go while still technically being in Auckland. I'm on the hunt for Pekapeka Tōroa, or the long-tailed bat. Cool, that you think that you've got bats in your backyard. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Through a little gate and along a reasonably well-worn path, so no bush bashing for me, we had a little clearing. Well, we just sort of wait here, do we? Well, we can yeah. go I'd down, go down. Yeah, yeah. probably sit on that um, second one over. Yeah. Where are the chairs, Pete? <laughs> <laughs> so this is, in theory, this is a perfect spot. <laughs> and it's not like you can rustle them up or the talking will do anything, they just do what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. Pika Pika are not so easy to spot. You're always fooled by some fantails or swallows initially. <laughs> Apart from being fooled by birds, our native bat is hard to find because there aren't that many of them. They're a threatened species and at high risk of extinction. But I've got a few things going for me this evening. Bat detectors. So even if we don't see them, we might hear them. You can only hear them with a monitor because of But they don't really make a noise, do they? No, no, no. no, They make a noise that some children can hear, but us us buggers can't. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so the, the little handheld converts that into a noise that we all can hear. So that's like a little transistor radio, so you dial it into what frequency, so it's not tune it up to the station, yeah, so you yeah. put it into the 40 kilohertz. 40 kilohertz is the frequency of the Pekapeka Tōroa's call, which I know because we also have a bat expert along. Ben Paris, Senior Conservation Advisor at Auckland Council, by day, by night, New Zealand Batman. <laughs> and some locals. Andrew Sinclair, and uh, I'm with Whaku Poko Lankia, and also uh, Te Hikoi, which is a region-wide Lankia and Iwi Initiative, involved in pest control and trying to get community collaboration. I'm Duncan Granshaw, I'm a local landowner, I've got um, 20 acres of native bush that we've had for three or four years, so I'm going through a rapid learning curve with these gentlemen of how to look after it. And last but not least... Yeah, hi, Pete Hardy, I'm um, a very amateur um, environmentalist, I've got five acres of bush here in Patamahoe. Pete was chair of Pogu Pogu Lanky for about five, six oh, years. Two, yeah. two or three. I yeah. failed to go to a meeting and I was made chair. <laughs> yeah. It's in Pete's backyard that we'll be bat hunting, but it's not quite dusk yet, so we sit on Pete's deck for a chat. 
It's been one of those misty, wet Auckland days. Not really raining, but not exactly dry either. But even the dodgy weather doesn't detract from this incredible setting. Straight off the deck is a bit of lawn and then bush teeming with bird life and a sprinkling of bat life too. We know that the long-tail bat, the pikapikatoro, we know that there's strongholds in the Watakari ranges and the, the Hinua ranges. This is Ben again. He's been the driving force behind surveying bats in this area. And Andrew's been doing some bat monitoring with some bat detectors for us um, in Whakapoko land care for, for a while, but we decided to go do a, a region-wide Franklin survey um, from Hanua all the way across to Whitu, and yeah, we were really surprised by the results. So you've got to picture the area we're talking about here. This is on the outskirts of Auckland, so it's kind of rural, but not really bushy. Ben describes it as... It's more of a, a sea of pasture with islands of bush. We don't know a lot about Pekapekatoroa, and what we do know has been from studies done in Fiordland. So these urban cousins are even more of a mystery. We think that the bats utilise these islands as a sort of matrix of landscape that they hop between, but we don't really know. That lack of knowledge is something Ben's hoping to change. At the moment we're just trying to find out where they are so we can better protect them and then we can try and start studying them a bit more. So the first step was to do that region-wide Franklin survey. Here's Andrew. I think there's about 60 or 70 survey sites, and of those, about 30 of the sites were in this um, sort of Monaco lowland area, mm. isn't it? Yeah, and and that, when Ben's talking scattered bush, it's it really is scattered. I think less than 2% of the land is left in its natural state. Not many places for bats. 60% of them came back as with um, positive bat passes. 60%? More than half of the 60 or 70 sites across Franklin had bats, or at least a bat. We can't say how many bats that is. A bat passes just as a bat going past the detector, making its echolocation sounds that it makes, but we don't know if that's one bat or ten bats. But we do know that the site that we're here today um, was one of the highest activity sites that we recorded, and um, even compared to some of the Hanua Ranger results, um, it was one of the highest results, so um, it was surprising. Ben tells me a group of bats is called a cloud, and although they use echolocation, they're not actually blind as bats. So what else do we know about the Pekapeka Tōroa? So they fly a bit like a, a fantail or a swallow, that sort of yeah. darting movement. Yeah, Halfway yeah. in between, yeah. so they're not quite as smooth as a right. swallow, but they're quite a lot faster than a fantail and the size of a mouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've taken some kids on a bat walk before and she's, one little girl said it looked like a butterfly. So oh, it's, it's very, very similar to a big butterfly, yeah. About the size of your hand. Um, so, yeah, very, very small still, but... Um, yeah, and, and that classic Batman shape. Um, we've found them not only in native forests, but in gum, pine, macrocarpa, willows. They seem to uh, roost in sort of hollows of trees or under bark in epiphytes or um, just undead branches. Um, we're still not sure about how they choose a roost, but we assume that it's something to do with the amount of protection it gives them during the day and the temperature also that warms them up so they might be on a more northwest facing when the so that the sun warms them up as they're getting ready for their evening uh, feed. But even if you find a roost, the bats don't always stick around for long. You think you've found the roost and then they go and move. 
we think that they moved every week or so. So we think that it might be to do something to do with the build-up of parasites or something. So they just suddenly they're there and then suddenly they're gone. They don't have a rotation or anything. They're just gone. So we can we can do all the protection we want of the roost, but they might not come back. <laughs> Peka Peka Tōroa tend to be more active in the summer with their pups. The long-tailed bats are completely insectivores, so they only eat flying insects like moths and mosquitoes and beetles. Um, so they're going to be feeding on the air, on the wing, most of the night um, during the summer. We think that they sort of move together in maternity roosts um, so all the mums and pups stay together during those summer months the guys will hang out in their bachelor roosts uh, separately they have just one bat pup each year it's about a third of mum's weight um, it's born without fur without being able to fly with um, eyes closed and sticks with mum for the first six weeks it's a mammal so it feeds off mum's milk and we think that they sort of hang out in with their aunties, grandmothers, um, sort of in fam- familiar groups. Which sounds nice, but there's a downside. If a maternity roost gets predated on, um, then it's really devastating for the whole population. We think that these, these long-tailed bats can live up to 40 years, so it's a long time for a very small mammal. But we're also a little bit concerned that um, some of the bats that we're picking up might just be stale males. <laughs> um, so, um, like who you're interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, need, we need to make sure that the, that the population is breeding as well. Because that's the thing about our native Pekapeka Tōroa. They're really susceptible to predation. And it's in the bats' downtimes, like during the day and in the winter, that they're most vulnerable. During the day, they're, they are in a sort of uh, torpor-like hibernation, like sleeping. And um, they're very vulnerable to pests. Pests will come in and, and use the bat roost as a smorgasbord. And as Andrew adds, they seem to be tasty to most pests. Everything pretty much potentially can predate on them, especially rats. And uh, there's possums and um, there's all the mustards, so the stoats and the weasels and even the ferrets. And then there's the predator that no one really wants to talk about. Cats. I'll start off, I, on, su- I suppose. How we first ma- were made aware that there were bats in the environment was my na- one of my neighbours came over with a dead bat and uh, and his cat had walked into the lounge with it. <laughs> they thought I'd be interested to have a look, yeah. yeah. So it was still been in, still in the freezer after o- over 10 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> have you got it then? I have, yeah. It's done, done the rounds of a lot of schools and uh, whatever. <laughs> So oh, that, no. that got us thinking about bats and how we might look after them. When I suggested doing an episode on cats versus bats, I was warned that I might create a bit of outrage. Firstly, turns out not everyone is as excited as me about bats. In fact, by far the most common response when I said I was going out bat hunting was, why? And despite Pika Pika Tauroa winning the coveted Bird of the Year title in 2021, when it comes to bats versus cats... Not many people seem prepared to put cuddly cats over kind of creepy bats. Now, I have a cat. She's not the easiest cat to love, but I do. Even Pete and Patamahoi has a cat. Well, I think cat, cats are just part of the problem. I mean, P- Peter's got a pet cat, so we can't, <laughs> can't, we can't go blaming name, all the cats. But, his name. Yeah. The cat. Betty. <laughs> but Pete probably wouldn't be happy if his cat bought a bat home. I know I'd be horrified. 
My puss seems to be a bit of an insectivore, actually, more into eating flies and cockroaches. Gross, but I'm okay with that. She sometimes brings in a skink. I'm told they're the introduced ones, so again, kind of okay. But it's not like she'd know the difference if it was a native one. And this is the problem. Cats aren't exactly fussy. As Andrew puts it... We used to have pet cats, but um, yeah, I think when you, once you work, start working in the environment, you start to think, well, maybe they, they don't, aren't a good fit. Yeah. In 2010, Doc surmised one feral cat was responsible for killing more than 100 bats. And just last year, a Doc study showed both feral and pet cats were responsible for killing bats in Otorohonga. So what's the answer? Yeah, um, no, it's a good question. I think... This is Dr Christine Sumner, science officer at the SPCA. Whether you think of them as a pest or a pet, it's still a, it's an animal. It's a sentient being. And that's the important premise when we talk about welfare. She says a good way to approach this issue is breaking it down by type of cat. Firstly, we have companion cats. They're our buddies at home. And Christine says making sure our pet cats don't catch native species comes down to responsible owners. There's a lot of people who desex their cats. More and more people are microchipping their cats. But what we would like to see more of is more people keeping their cats at home. And this is not normal here in New Zealand, um, but it's not to say it's not worth trying to um, move the needle it's in your cat's best interest for them to stay at home. Cats stray and become lost. So you have the risks of getting injured, um, you have the risks of becoming lost or stray. Cats fight with each other. And anybody who's had a cat roaming maybe has experienced the cat coming home with an abscess. And that's not fun either. So these are, these are different risks that um, cats face when they roam. But how do you circumvent a cat's nature and its desire to roam? So some people have fences with mechanisms on top, like little devices that the cat could jump up and there's a roller bar and they can't get a grip and it rolls them back, you know, um, or they put up netting. And we, we see this online, like uh, more and more people are putting up uh, catios. So this is like a patio that your cat can't get out of, right? So you kind of meet that cat's need because, yeah, we want owners to feel they're doing right by their cat. Um, and we know that the cat having the choice is really important to cat owners. Like, it's core to that cat's welfare. And providing those choices is really important for cat owners um, to feel that their cat is happy. We just think it's best to keep them at home, period. Now, for some people, that is keeping them inside. And we know that people can have cats happy and healthy inside. Um, and it's doable. It's just, again, going back to understanding what your cat needs and wants, the provision of choices, and meeting those needs in, in the indoor environment. And for some others, then it's indoor-outdoor, or it's just outdoor, but they can stay in the yard. So it, it's just all different ways to do this. But we would advocate that keep them at home, period. All cats are, they're unique. They're all individuals, and the, the owner knows this. Um, so we would ask people to do this at a pace that works for you and your cat. And we would say to owners, be creative. You're not, you're just, um, you're shifting where the choices are for your cat. Like, absolutely, it's important for your cat to have choices. But can you provide more choice within the home? Um, is, is your home somewhere a cat's going to thrive? There are options for letting your cat out safely. 
some people buy a harness and a leash for their cat and they'll do you know supervised walks with their cat and, but again stressing cats are individuals not everyone's cat's gonna enjoy that well they might prefer those funny clown collars birds be safe collars oh what, what are the yeah, I heard of they, them uh do you remember um like this is dating me back in the 90s when scrunchies were all yes, yes. they kind of look like a scrunchie it's almost like a big uh, collar that goes around your cat it looks like a clown's collar like a ruffled and they look you know I'm thinking not great it's funny because they're <laughs> colorful um, it just doesn't look normal but those can help reduce predation success you could put banding around your trees to keep the cats from climbing up into them. Um, be very careful putting out feeders and waters. You know, if you want to put water out for birds, you want to be very careful you don't put it where you're inadvertently setting up an ambush. The SBCA website has some great ideas for keeping your cat safe and happy at home. So that's our pet cats. The next category is the strays. As Christine says, a stray could just be a pet cat that's wandering. Or, at the other end of the spectrum, it could be an unsocial stray with no owner, but dependent on humans for food. There's very few tools we have, actually, to humanely and effectively manage stray cats. Mm. It is a huge challenge. There are some preventative measures we can take, like ensuring our communities are not welcoming places for strays. More of us creating more rubbish, you know, inadvertently. We create habitat for rodents, right? We create... Habitat that attracts stray cats. And then there's desexing and microchipping cats. All of these things help stem the flow of cats into that stray cat population. And we know that's a humane way to manage stray cats is just to stop the flow. If you find a stray cat, the steps are find out if it has an owner, look into getting it desexed, and think about whether you could make it your own pet, microchipped, and kept safely in your backyard. If not... Christine says don't expect the SPCA to take it off your hands. Their job is to help sick animals, not euthanise healthy ones. She suggests giving the council a call. I contacted the council and they suggested contacting other animal rescues in your area to ask their advice. And that's where things get a bit murky because no one seems to want to take responsibility for these extremely unsocial strays, the ones bordering on being feral. And that's the third category of cats, those that consider the wild their home. They're not dependent on humans at all. They're feral. In many parts of New Zealand, feral cats, by, by definition, are pests. So this would be under the Biosecurity Act. Some regions might classify them as pests and actively manage the problem, but not all regions do. There are currently no national laws or guidelines that comprehensively address cat management in New Zealand. The Department of Conservation has a mandate to manage feral cats on public conservation land, but that doesn't cover areas like Patamahoi. There are no clear numbers on how big the feral cat problem is, although one article I read did suggest there might be 2.5 million feral cats in Aotearoa, double the number of companion cats, and the problem just isn't going away. A senior dog scientist is asking why the department isn't doing more to control one of New Zealand's worst ecological problems, cats. Their feral cousins are causing a nuisance in parts of the Deep South. Feral cats are reaching plague proportions in New Zealand's backcountry. Some environmentalists are calling for the government to establish a National Cat Management Act. Currently, cats are not on the predator-free 2050 hit. It's not just bats that cats predate on. Birds, lizards, insects... 
Even the Maui dolphin, which is susceptible to a parasite carried by feral cats, they're all in the firing line if we don't get a handle on the problem. Christine is keen to see better legislation that helps enable better management of cats in general. Many people love cats, but not everybody likes them in their neighbourhood uh, or in their garden. Um, we also know that many people in New Zealand care about wildlife, especially native wildlife. They're quite precious and special. And the impacts of cats, whether they're a companion cat, a stray cat living in the community, or a feral cat, are clear. We, we do know that cats um, prey on animals. It's what they do. Um, so it's really important that we think of it, not just the welfare of the cat, the relationship with you and your cat, but also your place in the community. How do we want to live in New Zealand um, knowing that different people feel differently about cats? Back in Patamahoi, Andrew would love to see pet owners doing more. It's pretty straightforward really, is it, that cats, we need to take a lead out of from Australia. Yeah, they're doing it far better than us. And uh, really the the responsibility of the cat owners to keep the cat on their own place both day and night. And uh, once that's more clear, and it might have to be a a guidelines phase on that, but that's a sort of practical result that can deliver. I know we'd struggle to make our unfenced section cat-proof, although a catio sounds kind of cool. But getting that sort of change at a household level across the country will take time, and tougher legislation seems a very long way off, although Doc did recently support a petition to the Environment Select Committee requesting new legislation that would require all domestic cats to be registered via microchip and to be de-sexed unless kept by a registered cat breeder. Now, back to bats. As we've said, cats aren't the only threat. Cats are just part of the problem. I mean, we've tried to move the focus more to rats and because... Uh, no one likes rats and they cause the most damage. And so by targeting the rat, we can also, people inadvertently can end up controlling other pests. So in the meantime, Andrew, Pete and Duncan are focused on baiting and trapping to keep all the pests that go after bats and native birds down to a minimum. But trapping can be tricky. What you have with traps, a lot of people get into trapping, they get some good results and then over time, they lose enthusiasm because they stop catching so many and then they think, oh, I've done and dusted, got it sorted. So to get to predator-free 2050, how can we make it sustainable? A lot of traps, um, especially as you get lower in pest numbers, the um, you go to visit a kill trap and um, most of the time you're going for no reason and so you're wasting energy and wasting effort. And I think um, typically it's less than 5% of the times that there's a result. So you're spending a huge amount of time for nothing. So Andrew designed a new sort of trap. From sort of rats to weasel stoats, ferrets, hedgehogs, um, possums and cats, feral cats. And you can catch the lot and it doesn't kill them. And so you've got a choice. If you get a, an unintended catch, you can release it. Usually this type of trap would need to be checked daily. But Andrews has an auto lure, so it tops up the mayonnaise that they use to attract the pests. And it also has an auto sensor. When the trap goes off, it sends a text message and an email to you. And so you only have to go and check it when you've caught something. At this point, I get a demonstration of just how the trap works using a small toy rabbit. Put a bit of bait What's on there? Your hand there? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get it from here, Pete. There might be a bit of stick under yeah. it, I think. Thankfully, Pete 
did remove his arm and use a stick. We've caught him. <laughs> got him. We got Pete's rabbit. Was that the one that the cat couldn't catch, Pete? The cute, fluffy toy rabbit was well and truly caught. So we're having great success with these traps. They're Real catching incredible. ten. Yeah, ten times more than than the most traps um, catch. And um, and plus the the good thing is that as you get your pest numbers get lower, um, these still keep working. This yeah. this one traps now caught about thirteen possums, about ten hedgehogs, a few blackbirds and sparrows and all sorts of things, and two ferrets. What else? And a lot of rats, uh, yeah, a dozen rats. Wow. And, and what sort of time frame are you talking? How That's only six months. Yeah, about six months or a year. Yeah. The, the ferrets, is, uh, they're very hard to catch. And so but this trap has proven that, the, that it can get those really crafty ferrets. Yeah, and most people would not think there's ferrets around here. Um, but there's a lot that we're learning because we've got cameras on these, some of these cages and we know when the pests are caught. And so we're starting to learn a lot more. Andrew's trap won the 2022 Merrill Conservation Award for Innovation. Ben says it's been a really great engagement tool for rural landowners. They're talking to their neighbours like, oh, guess what I got? Yeah, yeah. And, and they're like, no, no, I can do one better. And even if you, you know, um, this trap is down in the, in the back paddock, um, a group of neighbours are all hooked up together um, and they can all receive the text message so they can go out and there's almost a competition to see who can get to the trap fastest. <laughs> well, or who has to go through that? Yes. Turn, is it? <laughs> but, but it is a really cool option because it means there's one person who has the primary responsibility but if you get going away or something you can um, someone else is getting the same message and you can just say, hey, can you look after trap number 39 or whatever while I'm away? And the fact that the locals now know there are bats in the area is fueling desire to do more. 83% of the, this area is privately owned, and so if you can encourage landowners to do the job, they can do it a lot more cost-effectively than sending in contractors. We're actually finding that bats are opening the farm gates uh, because um, people are interested in bats and they're like, wow, you know, they wouldn't open the door for us normally, but we'll say, hey, can we set up a monitor, bat monitor for you? And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. I already want to find out if there's bats here because it's, it's something new and exciting and, and different. People get a kick out of thinking there's something a bit mystical about a bat and uh, it appeals to them to think that they could be in their backyard. And, um, and what's really exciting from our point of view is we've got a heavily compromised environment, um, but, hey, we've been doing pest control as a community and you know, our bat numbers or our bat passes stats are really high and there's way more environments like in the Hunua's way better habitat for bats um, where the, there hasn't been so many bats recorded and so it's encouraging to think that you know pest control is a big solution to um, enhancing biodiversity and, and this is a bit of proof of it. I think you can easily correlate the uh, number of people involved in pest control and then therefore the number of pests going down and therefore the bats, uh, more activity in the bats. Um, so, I mean, it's probably not very scientific, but, you know, it's logic. Ben is hoping bats open more doors for him so we can understand them better. So the more um, citizen science, like, the, like these guys out there doing doing the work, putting out the bat detectors, listening, listening for bats, the more we can have that of that, the more we can find out about bats across the whole landscape. So how's our luck going to be in actually spotting one of these bats that have made Patamahui home?
We finish our chat on the deck as the sun disappears behind the trees surrounding Pete's backyard and head to the clearing where Pekapeka Tauroa were detected during the survey. So all the birds are going to bed at this time of night and the, the bats are just looking up. So I'm looking up, but do they fly high? Or just not? on the tree line. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You'll see lots of little bugs flying around us at the moment and so that's the, the bat food. <laughs> Those are like the perfect time, sort of just uh, just yeah. on dusk. They sort of come out sort of just half an hour either side of sunset right, sort of thing. Right. At the moment the sky is giving that sort of purpley tinge um, and it's the best time to look for these bats. Yeah, so if they're coming out earlier in the night, that means they're close to a roost. They're coming out later in the night than they're flying in from somewhere else. Ben is holding one bat detector... Duncan another, just to be doubly sure we catch a pika-pika tōroa if it goes by. They actually love a good clearing actually um, because they don't like to fly in a cluttered environment, Um, it's just too busy for them so um, they actually like keyholes in the bush naturally like this, yeah, so um, it's a much easier feeding ground for them. There's a little stream down the hill. We can hear it but can't see it as we're surrounded by trees. There's big trees that we're looking at here could be really good roosts as well. There's not many of these big old trees around the Patamahoe area um, unfortunately so um, anything we can do to protect these um, big old trees is, is, is really helppful for our bat population as well. Do they they're not fussy with trees you know they're happy and are introduced as yeah the, as the, the pines the macrocarpas the yeah gums willows mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, they don't seem to be fu- that fussy really, no. Pudetti's probably one of the best ones, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's like a nat- natural hollow tree. It's got all the nooks and crannies and everything in it. So conditions are nearly perfect, but there's no sign of any bats. They can actually slow their whole metabolic rate down so they don't need to feed every single night. But Ben's still hopeful. So the bat detector that was set out here over summer was supposed to be out for two weeks and it failed after a week but still got the highest amount of bat passes in the whole survey period. Oh, did you hear that? No, I didn't hear that. It was there and gone before I could even register it. It was one, yeah, yeah. I hope there's more, we're going to get more than that. <laughs> we start to question Pete's bat numbers. We start seeing ghosts. Yeah, I've seen lots. They just haven't been making any noise when they've gone past. But no bats. It's a long wait, and just when we're ready to give up... Let me give it another 10, 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. The sneaky bat was too quick for us to catch sight of, but it was a special sort of thrill hearing the detector go off. I can see why these guys are going out of their way to make Patamahoe safe for Pikapikatoroa. Ben says there's a good chance these bats live in other urban areas. We just don't know where. 
So, although there's no sign of bats in central Auckland, there are enough other native Taonga species that even one less predator on the streets could make a difference. Sorry, puss. Looks like it's a scrunchy collar and no leaving the section for you. Thanks to senior producer Liz Garton and a big thanks to Pete Hardy, Andrew Sinclair, Duncan Granshaw and Ben Paris and to Christine Sumner from the SPCA. If you need more bat content, Andrew shared some footage of a bat in a capsicum greenhouse, which we've put up on our website, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And we'll also share it on Twitter and Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. This episode was produced by Liz Garten, with help from me, Claire Cannon, and Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Mark Chesterman and Tim Walken is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Now, Liz has worked behind the scenes on a number of excellent podcasts here at RNZ. For example, the award-winning Let's Be Transparent. In this series, Joseph Stockhausen talks about navigating the ups and downs of gender transition. You can find it on the RNZ website under the podcasts and series tab or on your usual podcast provider. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Have a great week. Kia pai, to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.